Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. We've all heard stories that make us do a double take. Tales that just don't compute, and so we sit with our heads cocked like confused spaniels and await further explanation. Humans are narrative animals, after all, so we relay important information via storytelling. Sometimes the stories we hear serve a purpose, to warn us away from danger, perhaps. Other times, the stories are just for fun, for the purpose of being weird. This is one of those stories. My grandfather said a barber taught him how to drive a car. A barber? I asked. Why in the world would a barber teach you how to drive a car? Well, it wasn't like I could go to the DMV and take a road test, he scoffed. Things were different back then. So what happened? I asked. He said he went to the barber for a trim. The guy had his Ford parked by the door. My grandfather got his hair cut, and the barber, having finished for the time being, offered to teach my grandfather how to drive. He said the barber took him up the road a ways, told him to speed up, slow down, turn around, and put the car in park. My grandfather did all of this, And then he and the barber went back to the barber shop, and the barber dubbed him able to drive. Apparently, this was a regular occurrence in his small town in the 1930s, 40s. Really? I asked. Sure, he said. We had to come back early, though, because he would have been late for a bloodletting. Wait. What? Hello, oddballs. And welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week I wanted to focus on the practice of bloodletting, the bleeding of an individual to remove various illnesses. If you're a queasy sort, I'd maybe skip this one. I don't expect it to be too graphic, but we'll absolutely be talking about blood. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Daniel from Michigan and Kat from Minnesota for their lovely emails. I always enjoy reading about spooky places and practices from other parts of the world, and I'll be adding their suggestions to my ever-growing list. What were their suggestions, you ask? You'll just have to wait and see. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Mike Burton of the Genuine Chit Chat podcast. Interviewing with Mike was a hoot and I'm looking forward to the next time that we might sit down and have a chat. If you're interested in listening to the two-part interview that I did with Mike, pop on over to genuinechitchat.podbean.com 
and check out episode number 78, part 1 and 2. We talked about a bunch of stuff, including some of my collections and my passion for folklore and urban legends. Truly, though, Mike has a great podcast and interviews some really interesting people. You should absolutely have a listen to the other episodes, as well as subscribe if you like what you hear. Thanks for the time, Mike. And for God's sake, stop bleaching your mustache. Anyway, on with the show. Borobile enemas. Urine as an antiseptic and thick needles used to remove cataracts. Medical history is weird, and some aspects of it are absolutely horrifying. I mean, I understand that we had to start somewhere. How were we to know that creating a poultice for an open wound using human excrement was a bad idea? We had to try it to see what would happen. Guesswork. All of it. On a past episode, I talked about the four humors and how an imbalance in the blood and bile were blamed for many ailments. Now, I won't rehash a lot of that info here. You'll have to listen to that episode a little later. That's season two, episode five. But I do want to put things in perspective. There are four humors. Blood or sanguine, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And these four humors, according to Hippocrates, governed a large majority of early medical practices. So let's start with blood. Blood is found in veins and arteries. Seems pretty normal, right? And can also be referred to as sanguine, Latin for to deal with blood. Hippocrates believed that the liver was exclusively in charge of the blood-making process within the body, and that the amount of blood within a single individual could influence their complexion as well as their personality. Production of blood was linked to spring and summer, and as the seasons got warmer, the increasing heat brought blood to the surface of the skin, producing sweat in an effort to cool off likely why the blood humor is linked to heat and moisture. If you had an excess of blood, it meant that you were sanguine, and your personality would be jovial or charismatic. It could also mean that you were big into daydreaming and sociable towards others. Sanguine personalities often had red complexions, further leading, quote, physicians of the time, to believe that their evaluation of sanguine individuals was correct. Bleeding was the general cure for too much of this humor. Now, please note that I've put the term physician within quotation marks. During this time, anyone could be a physician on a whim. There were, quote, good physicians, but nobody really had a clue as to the inner workings of the human body. Anyone could wake up one morning and decide to start treating patients. I mean, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. But moving right along. 
So, as far as phlegm is concerned, you've likely become familiar with this humor while hacking up a lung during cold and flu season, way back when phlegm was associated with winter and cold weather. Makes sense. While it was cold and damp outside, people had a tendency to get sick, and of course the phlegm itself was considered the cause of the illness and not a byproduct. The treatment would be just to avoid cold foods and liquids. If you're sick, you don't really have that get-up-and-go, which is likely why people who were categorized as phlegmatic were quiet and sluggish. The brain and lungs were said to produce this humor. Black bile. It just doesn't exist within the human body. It's likely that clotted blood was mistaken for black bile and was categorized as such. It was believed that black bile was produced by the gallbladder and diseases of fear and despondency, read anxiety and depression. This was later called melancholia, or melancholy, meaning sad. Black bile is associated with the earth and the season of autumn. Yellow bile. If you've ever gone a while without eating to the point of being physically sick, then you've likely met this humor. Yellow bile was associated with aggression and the element of fire. That makes sense because vomiting stomach acid can be very uncomfortable. The particular episode on which this information was originally shared was about corpse medicine. The use of mummies, yeah, like mummies from Egypt, to cure certain ailments. But these descriptions of what were believed to be the internal workings of the human body are essentially interchangeable. The above informed early physicians, quotes again, regarding many medical issues, so I think it's pertinent to know the humors and to understand their supposed purposes. Plus, it's kind of odd and creepy, so totally on brand. In 1215, the Pope decreed that patients who needed bloodletting would have to go to barber shops. You see, barbers had all the equipment that they needed to perform the task. They could also pull teeth, administer leeches, we'll get to those little suckers later, and amputate limbs if needed. Why would barbers be considered capable? Well, they knew how to use a razor. So presumably they would be skillful at any treatment that involved cutting skin. That seems like quite a stretch to me, but okay. From the Vintage News, quote, blood was removed from the patient's body by using tools such as a lancet, a small surgical knife with a sharp point. Depending on the condition of the patient, different amounts of blood were drawn from the patient's body. During the procedure, the patients were given a pole, which they gripped, in order to make their veins bulge. The blood was kept in shallow bowls or flint glass cups, which barbers then placed on the windowsills of the barbershops. The used bandages were hung on the barber's pole in order to advertise the services that the barbers offered. Today, the barber poles have red and white stripes, which represent the blood and the bandages. End quote. Now, surgeons still performed the practice of bloodletting. But in the 14th century, many surgeons were wiped out during the Black Plague 
So the number of people seeking bloodletting increased. They would travel from town to town and set up tents where they would perform their services. Don't worry, I'm sure it was super sterile. The barbers that did this were known as the Flying Barbers. Very cute. Barbering wasn't completely separated from medicine to be considered an independent profession until the 19th century, but it apparently wasn't odd to find a small-town barber who would drain your blood and also teach you how to drive. So now that we know a little bit about barbers and bloodletting, let's get a little into the history of the practice. Bloodletting, essentially the practice of withdrawing blood from a patient to prevent an illness or cure a disease, was performed by surgeons from antiquity until the late 19th century. It was used to treat many diseases and afflictions, perceived and otherwise, including, and this is kind of a long list, acne, asthma, cancer, cholera, coma, convulsions, diabetes, epilepsy, gangrene, gout, herpes, indigestion, insanity, jaundice, leprosy, ophthalmia, plague, pneumonia, scurvy, smallpox, stroke, tetanus, and tuberculosis, to name a few. If you got a nosebleed, you'd be bled. If your period was excessive, you'd be bled. If you had bleeding from hemorrhoids, you guessed it, you'd be bled. Seems counterproductive, doesn't it? There were even some physicians, quotations again, who claimed that bleeding would cure heartbreak. From Wikipedia, quote, a French physician, Jacques Ferrand, wrote a book in 1623 on the uses of bloodletting to cure a broken heart. He recommended bloodletting to the point of heart failure, literally, end quote. Bleed you until you literally died. Seems legit, right? From History.com, quote, Considered one of medicine's oldest practices, bloodletting is thought to have originated in ancient Egypt. It then spread to Greece, where physicians such as Erasistratus, who lived in the 3rd century BC, believed that all illnesses stemmed from an overabundance of blood, or plethora. Erasistratus also thought that arteries transported air rather than blood, so at least some of his patients' blood vessels were spared his eager blade. In the 2nd century AD, the influential Galen of Pergamum expanded on Hippocrates' earlier theory that good health required a perfect balance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. His writings and teachings made bloodletting a common technique throughout the Roman Empire. Before long, it flourished in India and the Arab world as well. In medieval Europe, bloodletting became the standard treatment for various conditions, from plague and smallpox to epilepsy and gout. Practitioners typically nicked veins or arteries on the forearm or the neck, sometimes using a special tool featuring a fixed blade known as a fleam. In 1163, a church edict 
prohibited monks and priests, who often stood in as doctors, from performing bloodletting, stating that the church abhorred the procedure. Partly in response to this injunction, barbers began offering a range of services that included bloodletting, cupping, tooth extractions, lancing, and amputations, along with, of course, trims and shaves. The modern striped barber's pole harkens back to the blood-stained towels that they would hang outside the offices of these barber surgeons. End quote. So people went to get a haircut, and then they had some of their blood drained. The invent of scarificators and spring-loaded lancets in the 18th century did make the process of bleeding slightly less painful, but I've never been good with unpredictable pain and count-of-three bullshit. And in case you're wondering what a scarificator is, the device contained multiple blades that would make a set of parallel cuts in the skin. You pushed a button on top of the scarificator, and the blades would flash against the skin. Around this time, bleeding was reserved for the elite. Marie Antoinette was bled while in childbirth. She fainted mid-push and was revived by bloodletting. Actually, someone opened a window and the fresh air revived her, but the physicians back then were always looking for reasons to extol the practice. Leeches were also used for bloodletting. On the morning of July 13, 1824, a French sergeant sustained a stab wound to the chest. It only took a few minutes for him to faint from blood loss, but once he arrived at the hospital, he was bled another 20 ounces to, quote, prevent inflammation. During the night, he was bled another 24 ounces and another 10 the following morning. Over the course of the next 14 hours, he was supposedly bled five more times. Quote, medical attendants thus intentionally removed more than half of the patient's normal blood supply, in addition to the initial blood loss, which caused the surgeon to faint. Bleedings continued over the next several days. By the 29th of July, the wound had become inflamed. The physician applied 32 leeches to the most sensitive part of the wound, over the next three days, there were more bleedings and a total of 40 more leeches. The sergeant recovered and was discharged on the 3rd of October. His physician wrote that, by the large quantity of blood lost, amounting to 170 ounces, or 4.8 liters, besides that drawn by the application of leeches, 1.1 liters, the life of the patient was preserved. By 19th century standards, 13 pints of blood, taken over the space of a month, was a large but not an exceptional quantity. The medical literature of the period contains many similar accounts, some successful, some not. End quote. There's also another form of therapy called cupping, a form of alternative medicine in which a local suction is created on the skin. Generally, when you start reading about bloodletting and leeches, you start to tumble down the black hole of medical quackery. Cupping was believed to be beneficial and generally went hand-in-hand hand with bloodletting during medieval times. From Wikipedia, quote, While details vary between practitioners, societies, and cultures, 
The practice consists of drawing tissue into a cap placed on the targeted area by creating a partial vacuum, either by the heating and subsequent cooling of the air in the cup or via a mechanical pump. The cup is usually left in place for somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes. Cupping therapy types can be classified using four distinct methods of categorization. The first system of categorization relates to technical types, including dry, wet, massage, and flash cupping therapy. The second categorization relates to the power of suction-related types, including light, medium, and strong cupping therapy. The third categorization relates to the method of suction-related types, including fire, manual suction, and electrical suction cupping therapy. The fourth categorization relates to materials inside cups, including herbal products, water, ozone, moxa, needle, and magnetic cupping therapy. Further categories of cupping were developed later. The fifth relates to area treated, including facial, abdominal, female, male, and orthopedic cupping therapy. And the sixth relates to other cupping types, which include sports and aquatic cupping, end quote. You know, all this talk of cupping makes me feel a little uncomfortable, so I'm going to move this show along. But there's absolutely no real evidence that cupping offers any health benefits whatsoever, and it's basically been deemed complete trash by medical professionals. The belief here was that it was better to do something, literally anything, to try and alleviate a patient's symptoms or suffering than nothing at all. I mean, you could also just throw them in the road and have someone run them over with a cart repeatedly and call that, quote, medicine. Honestly, if I were suffering from a headache or a broken finger and somebody ran me over with a cart, the symptoms I started with would be more or less alleviated because they'd be the furthest thing from my mind. I've been run over 35 times with a horse cart and all of my bones are essentially mush. But Christ, if only I didn't have this damn headache. Now, by the late 1800s, new treatments had taken the place of bloodletting, and many physicians at the time discredited the practice, saying that it had no value. But this form of medicine hasn't fallen to the wayside. In some ways it has. Bleeding is not the catch-all cure it used to be, and now it's used only rarely, except for a very few very specific medical conditions. For example, hereditary hemochromatosis is a genetic disorder characterized by excessive intestinal absorption of dietary iron, resulting in a pathological increase in total body iron stores. Humans, like most animals, have no means to excrete this excess iron. Additionally, Polycythemia vera is an uncommon myeloproliferative neoplasm in which the bone marrow makes too many red blood cells. It may also result in the overproduction of white blood cells and platelets. From here, I'm going to talk a little bit about self-bloodletting. If you're triggered by talk of self-mutilation, self-harm, or suicide, I'd recommend skipping this next bit. 
There are also individuals who suffer from SBL, or self-bloodletting. The Eurasian Journal of Medicine published an academic paper by Onur Barak Darsun, Fatma Veral Taz, and Tanner Juvenir, titled Self-Bloodletting, an Unusual Form of Self-Mutilation in Adolescence. In the paper, they address self-mutilation and make the claim that bloodletting can actually be lumped in with eating and personality disorders. There is a sense of euphoria from being bled, and people who suffer from SBL will sometimes bleed themselves to the point just shy of death in order to feel the high. Quote, Deliberate self-harm is a common clinical problem in adolescence. Self-bloodletting, however, is a rare form of self-mutilation that refers to the act of draining one's own blood by venipuncture or an intravenous cannula. In the literature, this behavior is commonly associated with eating and personality disorders. The French literature describes this as a syndrome called Lacinia de Ferrol, which is categorized by self-induced hemorrhage, anemia, and a pathologic personality. Factitious anemia is another term to describe obscure anemia cases caused by SBL. Fatalities have also been reported due to SBL. In this paper, we present the inpatient treatment of a 17-year-old female who was letting up to 250 cc's of blood per day. To our knowledge, this is the first adolescent case reported. End quote. So the following is a case of a young woman who, for the purposes of confidentiality, is only referred to as E.B. Quote, E.B. is a 17-year-old girl studying at a nursing high school. She was referred to our clinic by a psychiatrist for hospitalization. In the assessment session, we were informed that her problems began two years ago when she began high school. She initially complained of restlessness, especially at night. Her first method of reducing stress was self-cutting, and she did this several times. As she began her training rotation in hospital wards, she discovered a new way of relieving herself, self-bloodletting. Initially, she took blood from the anticubital vein using 5 milliliter syringe. The amount increased to 60 cc's per day. In one incident, she used an IV cannula to let 250 cc's of blood. Following this incident, she discarded blood or flushed it down the toilet. Although her primary aim was to reduce distress and experience relief in the course of her illness, she also began to perceive bloodletting as an indirect and gradual type of suicide. Six months prior to admission to our clinic, E.B. fainted during her practice in the hospital, and her hemoglobin levels were very low. Clinicians did not find any sign of blood loss or bleeding from the gastrointestinal, urinary, or reproductive systems. She was admitted to the internal medicine ward and given a blood transfusion. Nevertheless, in her second day in the ward, she left the hospital against doctor's orders to hide the cause of her anemia. Following the advice of the intern doctors, her family decided to seek psychiatric help. 
E.B. talked about her bloodletting behavior in her mental state assessment and was admitted to our inpatient unit. In her initial assessment, E.B. told her clinician that in the last six months, she felt upset, tired, and had no interest in routine activities. She had also lost appetite and weight. She had suicidal thoughts and overdosed one month before admission. E.B. had poor peer relationships, but high academic performance, especially at her current high school. Her family had low socioeconomic status. Her father was a street vendor, who E.B. described as a distant and cold man. Her mother was a caring housewife. She had two siblings, a 19-year-old sister and 14-year-old brother. She did not report any psychiatric illnesses or drug and alcohol dependence in her personal or family psychiatric history. She also had no remarkable medical history. The psychopharmological section of her treatment began with 50 milligrams per day of sertraline for her depression, olanzapine 10 milligrams a day for impulse control, and benzodiazepine only if needed to reduce stress. She attended group and personal therapy sessions twice a week, and all other therapeutic pursuits except for out-clinic activities due to her high suicidal and destructive risk. During her stay, she showed clear borderline personality disorder behavioral trends. Her mood was unstable, and we observed a rapid devaluation of her relationships with other young people and staff in the unit. E.B. complained of feeling empty. While in a dissociative state, she then attempted to choke herself or to cut her wrists with any sharp item she could find. These states would last nearly half an hour and could only be ended by chemical or physical restraints. After calming down, she would try to convince the unit team that she was in an unconscious state and did not remember what she had done and would promise not to repeat the behavior. E.B.'s eating pattern was another concern, although her symptoms did not fulfill the criteria for DSM-5 eating disorder, she suffered from severe eating problems. In addition to her poor appetite, which was related to her depression, she also refused food. She lost 2.7 kilograms in the first week in our unit. She later managed to convey that refusing food was also a type of self-harming behavior, perhaps with the goal of a painful death. In spite of all the therapeutic interventions she received, E.B.'s self-destructive behaviors did not diminish during her two-week stay. Ensuring her safety and maintaining treatment for both her and other patients became impossible. The unit team decided to refer her to a more secure unit. E.B. showed no clinical improvement at discharge. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll be back again next week with more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. If you're contemplating suicide or just need someone to talk to about what you're feeling, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273 8255 or text HOME to 741741 in the U.S. I'm also including a link to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. 
Call 1-800-950-NAMI or text NAMI to 741-741. I've also included a list of helplines worldwide. Please remember, you're not alone. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram, at IdentityPod, and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You are welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com, And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be made available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to make sure that you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all who have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps. Thank you.